My wife and I often laugh about how competitive we are, but I laugh more. Luke Skywalker is probably my favorite hero who looks 100% ready to figure skate at all times. Just think about it. And then this is what my wife thought on our first four dates. On the first date, nice shirt. Second date, another nice shirt. Third date, that shirt again? Fourth date, okay, he only has two shirts. All right. I'm glad Chuck liked that one. Listen to the word of the Lord. This is John chapter 12. Six days before the Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead. A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha served And Lazarus was among those who ate with him. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard. And she anointed Jesus with it. Wiping his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance. But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said, That perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Not that he cared for the poor. He was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. Jesus replied, leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. Or in several of the other versions, he says, leave her alone. She has done a beautiful thing. The poor you will always have among you, but you will not always have me. This is the word of the Lord. The fragrance filled the house. The fragrance of Mary's worship was costly, expensive, a year's wages. How much money is that for you? One year of your income. No, seriously, think with me. One full year of your income. Can you afford to pour it on Jesus' feet in one moment? This is not, this is not, you know, fragrance like I have. $30, $40 for a, for a bottle, $65 for a very expensive, no, we're talking about a year's wages for a bottle. This is a form of investment. This would be like something your grandparents passed down as financial security for the whole family. This is not a normal thing to break it open. And once it's open, it must be used to break it open and waste it all in one moment. 
This is pure nard, the best of the best. I don't even have things like this in my world. I don't have things this precious in my world. Most of us don't, especially in this mass-produced world of commercialized, affordable, functional, beautifully packaged, internationally sourced, and immediately available products where any of us could walk into Walmart, which many of us are snobbish about, by the way. Well, Walmart. But any of us can walk into Walmart right now and the options before us and the beauty of what's before us, even the packaging, the perfect plastic packages that are crafted and shiny and look better than anything that other generations had by brilliant craftsmen and with, with labels that have artistry on it that we take so for granted. What I'm saying is we're so wealthy that Solomon looks like a pauper next to some middle-income person in Boise, standing in the convenience store. All I'm saying. And everything's priced and available to the masses. But we don't generally come into contact with things so precious that we shudder to hold them for fear that we damage them. The closest thing I can think of is actually a human baby. (laughs) The newborn. So fragile and precious that you put it carefully in the car seat and you drive home thinking, everyone's an idiot out to kill us all on the road. You're the extra paranoid father first time from the hospital with the first child. Anyone remember that? You saw him. He was going to cut me off. He didn't even signal. Oh, my word. You get home. But that's the closest I can get to how it must feel to carry something that's worth $50,000 made of glass in your hands. And she breaks it open. I actually will say this, to own such things so lavish and expensive in my grandparents' church would have been viewed as sin. Just throwing that out there for free. How shameful to have something that's only ornamental, only for the senses, only for the beauty of it. In fact, the disciples think this way. The only thing they can think of is the only way to get to make this into a moral good is to sell it and give the money to the poor. Isn't that interesting? And think about this with me for a moment. Mary wasn't poor. Poor people don't have such things. I don't have such things. (laughs) She wasn't poor. And neither was she poor in worship. She poured her wealth, which was significant, out in one symbolic, one heartfelt act of devotion, and the fragrance filled the house. Now, not everyone liked the fragrance. It annoyed. You would think such a smell would, would lift the mood of the whole room, but it didn't. It annoyed Her unshielded devotion was costly, not just financially, but also in terms of social standing. The disciples are annoyed. In this account, it's only Judas, but in the Matthew account or in the Luke account, all the other disciples pipe in and agree. And then Simon, the host, is provoked to judge even Jesus for allowing this display of affection. Not everyone liked the fragrance of her worship. 
What does she think she's doing? Jesus then rebukes the disciples, leave her alone. And then he directly confronts Simon, if you look at the Luke account, in his own home. That's pretty bold. Mary pushed through all social etiquette. She pushed through all embarrassment of what anyone would think. She pushed through what would seem even wise for her own future. And she fell in tears and in passion and in unrest. How many of you have ever, in an unrestrained way, worshipped? Unrestrained. You know, snot. Screaming. Groaning. Dancing. I'm not talking about because the worship leader said to or because it's accepted in your church culture. I'm talking about because your heart and his heart connect and it's just the authentic. But she does and she is not liked for it. She pushed through all the contrivances, appearances, reputation, civility, rules of how to act around people, how to act in front of respectable men. Yet again, here's Mary in the wrong room of the house, breaking social norms for women and men. More on that later. But it was as much as she could give. This is now the third time, by the way, that we find her at Jesus' feet. Giving all her heart could give, and the fragrance filled the house. What a waste, say the disciples. Bunny rightly pointed out, no, it's not a waste. The question that Mary's heart is answering, and by the way, this is not an intellectual problem for Mary. It's just an emotional thing. But the question she's answering is, what is Jesus worth to me? The cost, spike nard. 300 denarii, 300 days wages. Maybe at the time something like the equivalent of thirty to $50,000 for us. Spend it all in one distinct moment on Jesus. She did it. You can tell what somebody's worth to you by what you're willing to sacrifice for them. I was reading a story last week of a lady whose mother died when she was very young. And her college roommate was being exceptionally insensitive and said, well, get over it. It's not like you lost an arm and a leg. To which her, she responded, yeah, it's horrible, isn't it, Dorothy? To which she responded, I would gladly give up both my arms and my legs to have my mom. Amen. Duh. And by the way, that's not how you respond to someone in grief. Just listen to them and say, I'm sorry. Maybe cry with them. Um, you can tell what somebody's worth by what you're willing to sacrifice for them. What's Jesus worth? Is he worth my time? Is he worth my embarrassment? My money? My passion? Is he worth my reputation? I know a lot of people think godliness is a means to getting a good reputation. Not if you're doing it right. (laughs) Your image, 
Here's a hard one. Is he worth your relationships? I wonder what sort of fragrance we would give off if we gave our most expensive worship, our best, I mean our best, to Jesus. Mary did, and the fragrance filled the house. Mary received much, and that's why she poured out much. From Luke's version of the story, Jesus says to Simon, I'm going to tell you the secret of her love. The secret of her love is that she's received great love. She's been forgiven much, so she loves much. You think you have little sin, so you think you have little need of grace, so you have little love. Simon hasn't experienced great grace, so he isn't awed, awed by Jesus. To him, it just looks like an unnecessary, wasteful, emotional display by a morally loose woman that indicates that Jesus doesn't know who's here. Have you ever been annoyed at other people's passion for Jesus? Have you ever been annoyed at other people's lack of passion for Jesus? I've noticed something about myself, that anyone who loves Jesus more than me is a fanatic, and anyone who loves Jesus less than me is a slacker, which means my perspective is pretty broken in both directions, and I need to repent, doesn't it? Why not be inspired by the one who loves Jesus more than me, and why not be moved to compassion for those who don't? I encountered a young man who was dancing like a ballerina in worship, making a total fool of himself, he looked idiotic and stupid. Of course, I did the only logical thing. I had him pray for me five times that the heart that was in him would get in me. David acted a fool in public. And of course, his wife was offended by this. You made a fool of yourself. He danced with all of his heart so hard he literally danced his clothes off. That's embarrassing. I'm just saying. I was horrified one day that I figured out my fly was open during a sermon and I'm standing behind a pulpit. You know? Nobody saw anything, but I was horrified. Imagine being David. But he doesn't apologize. He doesn't act like, you're right, I was wrong. I should have put, I should have put these priorities. He just says, woman, it wasn't about me. It wasn't for me. It was for the Lord. And I will become even more undignified this, and I'll be embarrassed in my own eyes. You think that when I worship, it's about me? The fire only falls on sacrifice, and trust me, he's worthy of my sacrifice. I'm going to have Fire. David had experienced grace. That's where that comes from. He knew he was the one who needed mercy. He knew he was the one who had received love. He knew he was the recipient of an incredible, incredible covenantal love. Mary 
had received much, so she loved much. An important point here, David's wife, not only was her worship not extravagant, but after that, she was barren. I think worship without passion often accompanies many forms of barrenness, especially barrenness of spirit. And by the way, if you're not able to have kids, I'm not talking about that this morning. We bless you and we wish you well and we pray for you to have kids. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about spiritual barrenness. Mary had received much, so she poured out extravagant perfume accompanied with tears and kisses and towel-dried Jesus' feet with her hair. That's passion. And not only is she not spiritually barren, but that one act of passion is still bearing children to this day. And everywhere the gospel is told, her story is told. And even in the telling of it, the fragrance begins to fill the house. But more on forgiveness. Mary knew forgiveness. Rita Snowden says, I heard Phil Weber say this this week and I was at pastor's conference. Forgiveness is the wonder of being trusted by God in the very place where I have disgraced him. Man, that gives me chills. Forgiveness is the wonder of being trusted by God, again, in the very place where I disgraced him. Doesn't that do something to your heart just to even like hear that? I wonder if maybe we need a refresher course on the glory of forgiveness, of being forgiven, of extending forgiveness. I wonder if maybe we've lost, and by we I'm saying we because I'm included in the we, that's why I use the word we. I wonder if maybe we've lost a bit of the wonder of forgiveness. And certainly, you will lose it if your conscience is telling you you're actively in sin currently. You're going to lose the glory of forgiveness if you violate your conscience and hold back from Jesus. Surrender. I wonder if the Lord would be so kind to bring anything that we need to surrender to our minds right now. Let's just take a moment. Holy Spirit, is there anything I'm holding on to that's separating me from a clean conscience, that's separating me from being able to really experience your forgiveness and receive your love deeply? Take a moment. Anything he brings to mind. If it's someone who hurt you and you're still holding on to the hurt, I forgive them in Jesus' name. I release the hurt to you. I bless them. They owe me nothing. They belong to you. I trust you, Father.
or whatever the issue is. I've noticed something that as we let go of what it is we need to let go and make our agreement with God, there's genuine contact and my heart can receive love. And then, I think you know where I'm headed, the fragrance begins to fill the house. Something else about Mary. Mary was a hungry soul. A hungry soul. Now, I think this is why I identify with her story so much. I've always been a hungry soul. Now, here's what I mean by a hungry soul. Hungry souls usually don't stay on the path of respectability and virtue simply because it's the right thing to do. Forget the right thing to do. I have a hungry soul. (laughs) That's not appealing to me. Maybe it should be. Sorry, it isn't. So if I'm going to stay on the path of obedience, it it better be because I have a heart that's able to have a big love and a big adventure and a big dream and a... Make sense? And you kind of know hungry souls when you see them. We tend to make big choices. Big choices for God if we're his and big choices for evil when we aren't his. If we follow Jesus, it's usually because we found a great, big, experiential, exciting, real Jesus who is interactive and demands enough of us to keep us experiencing him deeply. But if we don't get that, uh, then rules and laws and sermons and choruses and church stuff is not going to satisfy. And the world is out there being big and beautiful and open to exploration. And the next thing you know, we're... Alcoholics and playwrights and drug addicts and all sorts of things. We are the tax collectors and the prostitutes of your New Testament. Hi. Apparently pastors too. Strangely. Ooh, very nice. We're also the Davids of the Old Testament and the Pauls of the New Testament. You know, the go big or go home people who, they're hungry. They're just hungry. But when we finally get it, when we really experience God's love, just the sort of person who might be at his feet, weeping, snotting everywhere, and breaking open a $50,000 perfume. So I identify with Mary and always have. feel drawn to the story. feel drawn to her. I think the reason she loved Jesus must be the same reason I love Jesus. That he drew near to me when I was at my worst. And my worst was really bad. Going back to the forgiveness thing, are we kind of bad or are we super bad? Mary was forgiven, not just forgiven, it says she loved much because she was forgiven what? much. Again, Judah Smith, the pastor from, I don't know, out west, he says, are we kind of bad or are we super bad? That's an interesting way to talk about it. Some folk think that they're basically good people, but they've done some things wrong and grace covers those few things they've done wrong. Or maybe even that we're 50% good, but 50% bad and grace covers the 50%. And then we love Jesus 50%, you know? 
So we made a few mistakes, we're basically good, but for everything else, there's MasterCard. I mean, grace. (laughs) But if we get any real sense of our need for Jesus, I mean, think about this with me. Peter didn't have any real sense of who he was. All of you will deny me before this night is over. Not I, Lord. I love you more than any of these fools. Peter, I tell you the truth. Before the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me three times. Peter didn't know himself at all. I think it's possible not to know ourselves at all, not to know our limitations, not to know our weaknesses, not to know our proclivities, not to know our brokenness. And not knowing it, not realize how much grace is carrying us. Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and the grace to me wasn't without effect. I served God more intensely, with greater effort, with more sufferings and more perseverance than any of the rest of the apostles. I am hardcore. But it really wasn't Paul, says Paul. It was actually Jesus living through Paul. It was grace. See, grace, someone who understands this, doesn't say, I did 85% good, Jesus covered the rest. They say, I did this right and I did this wrong, but the things that I did wrong were covered by grace and the things that I did right were accomplished by grace. Simon imagines his life as 20% grace, 80% whatever. I mean, yeah, 80% works or whatever you want to call it. Mary knows she's 100% lost and now she's 100% found and this has 0% to do with something that she did and that it is 100% Jesus and his extravagant love. This love that searched for her, this love that found her, this love that named her and cleansed her and embraced her and promised, I'll never leave you. Love that's better than any of us ever dared to dream, but is true. And when that love comes home, when that kind of forgiven much comes home, we love much and the fragrance fills the house. I wish I had Mary's backstory. I wish I had more of it, you know. Some people think, oh no, it's a different Mary and John than a different Mary and Luke. And I'm like, you are dreaming, you're working too hard. You're working too hard. But I do wish I had the whole story. I wish I could sit down in the kitchen with coffee and talk to her and ask questions and say things like, I love asking this question, then what happened? You know me. I ask that a lot. Tell me more. Go back. Start over. You started in the middle. I want to know the beginning. Go back to the part where you said you never met a man like him before. How was he different? What other kind of men had you met? Tell me that story. How often did Jesus stay here? What did he look like? What were his eyes like? Did he have a good singing voice? Was he funny? You say no one ever loved like he does. How do you know? How do you know he loves? How do you know he loves you? No, start over. Go back to your childhood. Tell me everything, Mary. Tell me everything. I suspect each one of us has a really good story. A really good story. And I suspect that Mary's worshiping because she knows her story. And I wonder if we would listen to each other's stories and tell our own. That even in the telling of where we were, who we were, how we met him, what happened. I suspect that even in just the telling of the story, the fragrance would begin to fill the house. Are you catching a theme this morning? She did a beautiful thing. I think that's interesting. That's his defense. 
economics, productivity, efficiency, ministry. (laughs) Isn't that funny? That ministry became the enemy of worship? (laughs) Why is this so normal for me? Notice I didn't put that on y'all. I mean, I have a hard time with receiving God's love. I feel that my relationship is 97% Martha, 3% Mary. Let's get on with loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. We got stuff to do today. I'm just saying. It's not good. But Jesus offers this very different value system. Leave her alone. She did something beautiful. She did something beautiful. It's a simple defense. And to me, this rings to my core. There's something that I live with as a kind of a refrain, and it's this. Make something beautiful for God every day, whether anyone appreciates it or not, and then do it again tomorrow. What a waste, says the world, when they see us making major sacrifices for Jesus. What a waste when they see how much time and energy we spend on his kingdom and his work and his people. What a waste, they say, when we throw away career opportunities to become missionaries in the slums. What a waste, they say, when we stay up nights and hang out with homeless people. What a waste. And Jesus says, that's a beautiful thing. What a beautiful thing you've done. And in that beauty, the fragrance fills the house. Mary let her hair down. I'm coming to conclusions here, but Mary let her hair down. Now, I don't know how many of you grew up conservative Mennonite, but I can tell you this. There have been rare occasions when I have seen my mother-in-law's hair down and I felt like I needed to look away. Her hair is always up and always under a bun because 1 Corinthians 11 says that a woman must cover her head, cover her hair, to pray and prophesy in public. And the reason it said that was because in that time and at that place, in the culture, the only women who had their hair down were temple prostitutes and loose women and women making love to their husbands or bathing. But other than that, the woman's hair is not a public commodity. So for Mary to let her hair down and wipe Jesus' feet with it and kiss his feet, all I'm saying is I would have been looking away. I'm not comfortable with public displays of affection in general. And I was, I'm uncomfortable with this. I'm also moved by it. Can you understand the eyebrows in the room, the scandal in the room? It actually makes some sense to me. I'm not mad that other people were like, what is going on here? She let down her hair. Some crazed liberal scholars believe Mary and Jesus were secretly lovers because of this. I'm glad you laughed because I don't think it's true. But I understand why they think that. (laughs) That's two brilliant, hilarious comments today, bunny. Okay. Think this through with me. I need to end, but I just want to make a few more points. She put one pound of pure nard on Jesus in preparation for his burial is how he interpreted it. So while he is being punched in the face, prophesy Christ who hits you, while he's blindfolded, while they're whipping him, while he's carrying his cross up the hill, while they press the crown of thorns onto his head and the blood is mixing with the nard, he smells the one for whom he's doing this. 
Think, of, think this through. Days later, they wrap him. They put 100 more pounds of fragrant spices on his body. And when he lays in that tomb, the fragrance fills the tomb. And when he rises from the dead and walks in the garden and says, Mary, the fragrance precedes the voice. I love this stuff. See, this is what Paul, looking back on in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, said that we, we who know Jesus, are always walking around and spreading the fragrance of what it is to know Jesus. And it's pleasing to God. It's also pleasing to those who are being saved, but to those who aren't, it smells like death. Where do you think Paul got that? The fragrance still fills the house when we are intimate with Jesus, when our hearts have access to his heart, when we receive the mercy, when we receive the forgiveness deeply, when we pour back out on him in extravagant love what he poured into us to this day. The fragrance fills the house. Go ahead and stand. Lord, make it so in our lives Starting now and tomorrow and Tuesday and the next day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.